It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is bread man scientist Guy Frankel of Sayor Bread. He's well known for his intricate stenciling, crazy beautiful crumb shots with unbelievable color combinations and experimental loaves. He lives in Los Angeles, is part of the LA bread scene, and was recently featured on BuzzFeed Food. He helps administrate Perfect Sourdough on Facebook and is an ambassador for the Sourdough Library in Belgium. Guys, thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Christy. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, I feel like we have a ton of stuff to talk about, and we've seen each other at various LA Bread Baker events, and you always bring these loaves that are clearly created by thinking outside the box. But before we get to your incredible bread, I have to say you're a bit of an enigma, and I'm dying to know more about you and how you started your journey toward bread making. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my uh, the start of the journey was very uh, humble. Oh. I start uh, baking as a hobby. I'm my the hobbies that I enjoy are uh, homesteading kind of hobbies. So I'm a gardener and I like to fish and I like to cook. And um, eventually, I realized it's time to add baking to that uh, skill set. You know, I like um, these hobbies are very meditative and relaxing and leaves you time to think. So baking seemed like the perfect next thing to, to uh, a skill to acquire. And that was just the plan to learn how to make a decent, uh, good, healthy sourdough loaf. Mm -hmm. But because I'm, I'm a big geek and I like <laughs> to learn, I found myself delving deeper and deeper into the vast oceans of knowledge that surround this, uh, this thing called baking, you know, that, that has really been with us from the dawn of civilization and, and maybe one of the cornerstones of being able to have a civilization. Right. And so I just geeked out and geeked out to the point where I acquired really good skills. And at that point, because really I'm an artist and a visual artist, I found that all of a sudden that I can treat the dough like a medium, like clay, and mm -hmm. start experimenting uh, visually and as well as culinary and, uh, you know, and other stuff. And, and, and I found a outsource for my uh, creative tendencies. And I, you know, I was just posting it for my friends on Facebook, like just my family and friends when my cousin was like, these need to go on Instagram. And I was like, I don't know what Instagram tool. <laughs> so he opened uh, an account and called it bread guy in the beginning uh -huh. <laughs> and just up like would download my Facebook photos and would upload them. And then a month later he had a thousand followers <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, all right, fine, I get it. <laughs> and so I started posting on Instagram. I took over the account and then people started asking a lot of questions and I was more than happy to answer those, you know, like and share some of this uh, knowledge that I've been accumulating. And so it just kind of snowballed from that. And soon there were tens of thousands of followers and all of a sudden I'm getting phone calls inviting inviting me to uh, fly to Europe to these baker conventions wow and teach master class so it really just snowballed out of hand really quickly without any planning or any real ambition on my part other than just saying yes to stuff that looked like it was going to be joyful 
so it's it's a bit of a crazy roller coaster, you know, ride that was unplanned, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, and so your setup, from what I can tell, you it looks like you have a professional setup, and yet your Instagram feed says not for sale. So what's going on there? So yeah, they're not for sale, and I do have a professional setup. So because I think because I made the decision very early on uh, to be open open source about you know my baking and not you know, just uh, look look at my pretty breads, but but share a lot of the knowledge. The community responded really well. And then at first, the farmers reached out. For years, I've been testing uh, new crops for local farmers. At first, our local um, uh, LA area farmers, and then all over the U.S., people started sending me their grains to test, and even Europe. And then I'm like a test pilot for a mill company in Germany. And eventually, the oven people, it's a $32 oven from Rothko. Um, and Pleasant Hill grains imported to America. And it's an oven that I've been eyeing and dreaming about for years. So they, they sent, eventually they sent me one. So I've been, you know, I haven't been making my uh, living off of bread, but I have been embraced by the community and by the industry, and they've been supporting, you know, my efforts. And so there's a flower sponsorship. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people supporting my R&D uh, exploration or journey. That is so cool. Well, I will, we're going to talk a little bit more about your experimentation down the line. But first, I know you said you have a garden. Can you, for our listeners, just describe what it looks like and how much space you have to work with? Yeah. So I've been growing my own vegetables and herbs since we moved to Los Angeles, which was uh, 20 years ago now. Mm -hmm. different the garden changes every time we move a house we have a little bit more space or less space it's raised beds and it's um uh, rows of uh around the edges of the of the lawn i grow all the usual suspects tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and you know a lot of the produce the the vegetables that we would want to eat but i focus mainly on rare plants you know so i grow strawberries spinach and I grow za'atar, and I, I grow seven or eight different kinds of basil and seven or eight different kinds of thyme and three kinds of oregano. And I like a lot of medicinal stuff. And I use a lot of the stuff that I grow in the baking. So I try to grow stuff that I won't have access to unless I grow it myself, you know, yeah. stuff that you can't find on the supermarket or even at the farmer's market. Well, I'm curious about za'atar because I, I have always understood za'atar to be a combination of herbs and spices, but it's an actual herb you can grow? So it's a never-ending mystery with the za'atar. <laughs> and za'atar is two things. Za'atar is a spice mix, spice blend, mm -hmm. that is um, mostly the za'atar plant, and then it's augmented with some uh, uh, sesame that's toasted and with some sumac and maybe a few other variations. But there is an actual za'atar plant that grows in Lebanon and in northern Israel. And when you touch it, when you smell it, you, you go, oh, yes, that's exactly <laughs> the, the smell that I recognize from the spice plant. It's not oregano. It's not margarine. It's not thyme. It's, you know, it's, it's right now. I believe it's defined in the, in the marjoram family, but uh -huh. it keeps changing because it's in between oregano and marjoram. It's Syrian marjoram. It's like a Syrian from Syria. 
Okay. And it took me 10 years to actually find, because I kept growing stuff I thought was going to be za'atar, and then it was oregano or something else. Uh. And finally, these, this, first, this is the first year that I have a batch that I'm touching it, and I get the goosebumps because it's this, the smell that I recognize. Oh, that's so great. Well, thank you for clearing that up because I, I've been wondering, because there is a guy who comes to the bread bakes that we have monthly and he puts za'atar in his bread or on the top and it's amazing. And I've been trying to figure out, because like, it looks like a spice blend, but then people say they're growing za'atar. I'm like, okay, someone needs to clear this up for me. So, so thank a, you so much. Both. <laughs> a, it's both. And B, most people that say they're growing za'atar are probably not. Okay, got it. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. You often bake with varietal grains and experiment with blending different flours for optimal effect. Can you talk about that for a minute? Because it's this is the mad science part that I love. Yes, of course. So there's different aspects, but I guess I will start with talking about the richness of the grain varieties that we have and the grainissance, what I call the grainissance that mm. we're experiencing. Uh, so my, I, I mill all of my all of the flowers that aren't white, that aren't uh, you know bread flour that was already sifted. I mill from grain myself. Mm-hmm. And currently in the bakery or in the studio, as I like to call it, there's probably thirty different varieties of grains. Uh, and and so I have maybe eight different kinds of wheat that they all have names. You know, not just a hard red wheat or a soft white wheat or a winter wheat. They're uh, names, you know, uh, of different varieties. Mm-hmm. And they have different flavor profiles. And they behave differently when you grind them into a flower. And that's just the wheats. And then I have, you know, two kinds of einkorn, a yellow einkorn and a red einkorn. And I have Coruscant wheat. And I have black barley. And I have purple barley. And I have blue barley. And I have regular, uh, regular barley. And teff and triticale and three different kinds of rye. And they're totally different in, in profile. And I can keep going, right? There's literally 30 or 40 or 50 varieties right. uh, of stuff. And that's just incredible. You know, before in the old, maybe even 20 years ago, all you could get was wheat and whole wheat. And maybe if you were lucky, you were turned on to the fact that there's a thing called spelt. Right. And now all of a sudden, we have all of these colors and flavors and textures and, and aromas to play with as bakers. So I find it very exciting. All of these grains are grown locally here, organically, by amazing small farmers on uh, incredible, mostly sustainable or even sometimes regenerative farms. Right. So you it, you get a lot of your grains from Larry Kandarian, who we've had on this podcast recently. <laughs> Larry the legend, Kandarian, is... I, I call him uh, the most uh, amazing and, and best grain grower in the world. And I've, I've got to test a lot of grains from a lot of different countries. His dedication both to the different varieties of heirloom grains that, that he uh, painstakingly finds and then grows into uh, enough seeds that he, he can grow a crop for us is amazing. And then on the other hand, his dedication to his agricultural practices are, um, are crucial yeah. of his grains. They're nutrient dense and they're flavorful more than any other grain it's just like a condensed version of any other grain that that i've tried and and he just keeps expanding his uh, his repertoire of what he's growing he's always on the lookout for another ancient variety and see if we can grow it successfully here uh i, it's I love fascinating that. yeah and yeah. and uh and how i guess the question is 
do they behave? Cause you said they behave differently than regular flour. How do you, which grain do you like working the most with? So the way I work in my baking, and I don't believe that there's a, like religion, right? I believe that they're all good if they work for you. So what I'll say now is not by any means to say that this is, you know, a better way to do things. But the way that I bake, I don't really focus usually on, let's say, 100% Coruscant loaf or 100% spelt loaf. I use all of these grains and all of my other ingredients that we will talk about uh, in a minute, probably, mm-hmm. like uh, colors for a painter. Yes. You paint a painting, you don't just take blue unless, you know, you're doing something very specific and paint, you know, you use all of the colors that you have on your palette and whatever you think might work well together. So almost all of my bakes are a combination of many. I mix and match according to what I think. None of the loaves ever repeat themselves. So every time I go to make a loaf like a painting, I just make something new. So I'll match ingredients and I'll think what grain do I think will be other component that I plan on putting in or... It's, it's, it's very random. It keeps changing. And almost, I want to say there's no bad answer. There's no bad grain. I just go through them. You know, it's a continuous, ever-changing uh, story that, I, that I'm telling through the bread. And so I, I don't stop and focus on one for, for more than one bread. And, and then I just move on to other things. And do you document your process at all or no? Not in the way that if it... Many times I get really, really exceptional loaves Mm -hmm. that stand out. They're all wonderful and and great. But because, you know, I'm not working from formulas, I'm always experimenting. There's peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. When I hit the peaks, the real high peaks that I'm blown away and I can't believe what I just put in my mouth, (laughs) I don't, I usually, I don't have a way to replicate that bread. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So you're you're truly an artist. (laughs) I haven't, and and I'll miss them. You know, there's a few breads that I can, you know, think, recall right now. And I go, oh, that was so good. I wish I could do it again. I can do something similar. I can aim for that, but I'm not in a controlled environment and I'm I'm not recording. And sometimes people get frustrated with me on Instagram when they ask for a recipe and I explain that I don't have it. Mm-hmm. And they think I'm being cute or something, but I really don't. You know, like they, they, sometimes they'll ask me for a recipe from two years ago, like oh. these, uh, these donuts that I made. I, I wish I had that recipe. Those donuts <laughs> were insane. I can't even begin to start to remember what I was doing because it was totally experimental. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of experimental, you post photos of insanely colorful loaves made with swirling dough combinations of black and burgundy and purple and orange. Can you tell us how you accomplish this in your bread? Yes, of course. I use a variety of vegetables, flower blossoms, peels, and, and I can go over some of the examples. None of them are a secret or anything, right? I always share what I use, or usually I share unless I'm being lazy on, you know, on writing the, the description. Mm-hmm. But I'll use beets and I'll use hibiscus flower and I'll use a blue butterfly pea blossom that you can uh, make into uh, the water. It's really dark blue and will color your bread blue. And I'll use barley powder, which, you know, you can put in your shake, but it will make your dough a really nice bright green as well. 
and so on and so forth. Turmeric for yellow, fresh squeezed carrot juice for orange, really bright orange, right? Mm -hmm. And all of these add flavor, nutrients, a lot of the time softness to the crumb. Uh, so I don't use obviously any kind of artificial food dye, but I use my love for the garden and my dedication, for example, to support the entirety of Larry's farming efforts and not just the grain that I like, but also the other crops that support rotationally those grains mm -hmm. um i'm dedicated to uh to you you know to trying to put everything that is good for us and yummy for us and see how that works in bread and a lot of them are colorful and whimsical and as part of the experience Right. Now, I know one, at least one person at our monthly bread bakes in the community oven in Westchester has tried to impart color in his bread and it always comes out kind of brownish, you know, um, you know, he tried beet juice and it, it was really red at the beginning, but then after the bake, it finished so, kind of brown. What do you do to preserve the color? So beet, out of all of the colors, beet is the most difficult one. Oh, it's okay. the one that is most often tried, but is the hardest one to achieve. First of all, I will say in general that in those category of vegetables and fruits, there's a huge difference between varieties and between crops. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's maybe just a few beets that are really dark enough that they will embark a really, really deep purpley, um, pinky color. But as far as retaining the color of beets, and I'll, I'll explain my geekiness, right? Okay. Here's what, what I said about before. So I looked at trying to make beet bread and make it pink, and it came out brown. Mm -hmm. and so I opened the internet and I said, what's the pigment that's in the beet? And what's the effect of heat on that pigment, right? Yes, and then yes. it, and then there's a scientist that wrote a whole paper about the effect of, of temperature on the pigment of uh, the beet. Of and then And then there's also the effect of uh, the pH. Um, in theory, if the, if the pH is higher, the beet will stay redder, right? So some people can add uh, acid, some sort of, uh, you know, like vitamin C or something like that. Or if you're me, you, you're either using some sourdough to make it a little more, you know, so you find ways to retain it that are along your philosophical, uh, you know, lines, mm -hmm. but the knowledge is out there, not necessarily in a baking book, but it's out there, you know, people like, for example, I, I got a lot of passion fruit from a farmer friend and we ate a lot of passion fruit and I made some passion fruit vinegar, but I looked at the peels mm -hmm. and I said, I wonder if this is edible. I wonder if there's, you know, value in it rather than throwing all of them. And sure enough, there's this amazing paper about the qualities of, of uh, passion fruit peel and how it's an emulsifier and you can use it for jams and you can use it. And so for bread, an emulsifier means you can put a lot more water into a bread that will keep it fresh for longer, right? Like um, psyllium husk, for example, is another additive that you can add to retain water and keep something like a bread moist for longer in a natural way. Mm -hmm. So now I'm dehydrating those passion fruit peels and milling them into the most beautiful purple flour mm -hmm. that is full of vitamins, fiber, and can keep my bread fresher. Wow. So I'm always like looking and then looking deeper, you know, and seeing what can I do. And then I put it online and say, hey, guys, look, passion fruit, if you have any, dehydrate and mill it. It's awesome. Awesome. And you're milling in the, uh, the mock mill? 
I mail in the Mokmel, yeah. I have all of the different versions of the Mokmel as they come out. <laughs> right, of course. That's so cool. We're, we're good friends, me and the, and the Mokmel uh, company. I'm a mm-hmm. big supporter of theirs, and they're big supporters of my efforts. Right. I have one that attaches to the KitchenAid uh, mixer. Yeah, that so. one I don't have because I don't use a mixer. So yeah. I was waiting for them to come out with a standalone one so I can use it. But yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, the standalone is much faster, uh, but the grain doesn't heat up in this one. So it's, uh, it's nice, but it does take longer. That said, uh, I digress. Uh, I've got to ask you about your stenciling technique because your stencils always come out so crisp and perfect. Can you describe your method or what tools you use for stenciling bread that makes it so? Yes. It's called being a Virgo. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. People think that there's some sort of something... There isn't. It's a piece of paper that I cut out into a stencil the way a graffiti artist will, you know, in order to spray paint. Mm-hmm. And the reason that mine come out so clean is <laughs> that I painstakingly make sure that they're well positioned, make sure that they're not popping up in anywhere. And then very painstakingly, I make sure that it's just the right amount of layers of flour, meaning too much will make it Puff, you know, puffy right. not enough will disappear. Yeah. And so I just do it carefully. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's a good, honest answer. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to step up my, oh, I guess, game. I guess I do have a tip. Oh, okay. Go ahead. For keeping it clean. Because one thing that I do have is a clean canvas to begin with, mm-hmm. meaning my, the top of my loaves are not already covered with flour. Mm-hmm. And to achieve that, you do the final proof with the... Usually, we proof in a basket with the seam facing up. Mm-hmm. And, on, and on the bottom, we put some flour so the loaf doesn't stick to the basket. Yes. But then when you turn it over, that flour is already there. And mm-hmm. then when you put the stencil, it, it's, you know, it's combined with the other flour and it looks a little messy. But when you proof with the seam side down, you get a really clean top. And then all you get on top of it is the flour that I Virgo-ishly applied. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great tip. And then how, well, you're, you're baking on baking stones. You're not using a large bread, large cooker, right? Uh, now for the last six months, I'm using the baking stones on the, in the Rothko, but mm-hmm. for years and years, I used a regular home oven with a bottom gas or electric, uh, you know, one kind of heat source on the bottom. Very, very humble, regular ovens Mm -hmm. that we all have. But to supplement that, you use the cast iron and you get the best, you know, as as good as any bakery. Yes. And probably we should mention uh, my friend Jim Challenger's um, new cast iron that are specifically designed for sourdough bakers and are just amazing. Uh, and it's yeah. a, so it's he, a cast made, iron. he made the cast iron that's designed exactly for the home baker. It's long enough that you can make um, a batard, you can make a round loaf in it as well. It's flat on the bottom and then the cover is, is deep, you know, so it's easy to load. The, it's just perfect. It took him a few years to put it all together, recently launched. And, you know, I they came out just as I switched ovens, but I have a couple of them and they're, I've tried them out and they're amazing. So if you're baking at home, this will be the perfect uh, supplement for you. You can get two, you can fit two of them in your oven. Oh, very nice. 
Oh, I will have to check that out. And I will definitely add a link to everything you're talking about uh, at the, on the blog post that goes along with this podcast. Wonderful. Okay. All right. So one more question I have before we get to our tip of the week. You have, in one of your recent videos, you made matzah for Passover and you used some kind of stippling device for poking a pattern of holes in it. What is that and where do I find one? <laughs> I got that question a lot. Coolest thing yeah. in the world. Yeah, uh, not matzo related at all, but I get that that's what was that's the takeaway from that video. Totally. <laughs> um, so these are uh, Uzba- Uzbaki or Uzbekistanian from Uzbekistan bread stamps. Ooh. There's a name for it. I don't remember the actual name of you know in, in Uzbekistanian. But if you just Google Uzbekistanian bread stamp, you will see them. And from the Instagram comments, I understand that they are for sale on Etsy. Oh, and they're not too cool. pricey. Okay. And they're used to make a kind of a flat bread that is raised around the middle. I mean, around the, the edges, kind of mm-hmm. like sometimes a pizza would raise. But in the middle, they flatten it up with the stamp. And they make like a flat a floral pattern, a little similar to what I did. Okay. Even nicer. They make really nice designs with it. They they cover the bread with an egg first, and then they'll stamp it. It's a very unique, beautiful bread from Uzbekistan. Yeah, and your matzah came out beautiful. I was enamored with it, and I had to find out what that was. So thank you for sharing. My pleasure. All right. It is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Yes, absolutely. I gave it some thought. You asked me for a tip and you said it can either be about baking or it can be about the garden. And so my tip combines both of them. Uh, And it's this. If you are a baker and a gardener, here's something wonderful that you can do. I use a lot of my fruits, vegetables, herbs, and blossoms to um, grow yeast and bacteria from because all of these are covered with wild yeast and wild bacteria. And if you just uh, cut them, put them in a jar with some water and a little bit of sugar, with the sugar being the food for the bacteria to grow and yeast to grow on, within a couple of days, you get a very carbonated drink, much like kombucha, without the tea and without the scoby yet. It will eventually develop a scoby after a month or two. But after three days, it's already carbonated. And if mixed with flour, you can quickly build a starter and leaven dough with it, make bread with, with the wild yeast and bacteria from your own garden. And wow. then, to, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. There's a tutorial on my Instagram. If you look at the highlights, a couple of the tabs will teach you how to do that, how to take a fruit or a vegetable and make yeast. We call it yeast water. And from that, you can make bread. It's a lot of fun, and it also makes a wonderful drink. And then the circular part of that is that the sourdough that I make from that, when you feed sourdough, or even if you just have your own sourdough and you feed it every day, you know that there's a lot of discard that is generated. And the most wonderful thing that I think you can do with that if you're a gardener is feed it to your compost pile or bin mm-hmm. and it inoculates it with those same yeast and bacteria that were out on your vegetables and fruits and that's instrumental for the compost pile to uh, you know to digest all of the stuff that you're putting in there it right. eliminates bad odors and it makes everything move much much faster that's a lovely cyclical experience you've just described there <laughs> I, I like it yeah 
Yeah. Thank you. Just for the sake of saying this so that we're all being safe, I just want to make sure you're you're not taking any fruit or flowers to make this yeast water that has powdered mildew or blight or anything like that, right? Of course. So, yeah, I mean, it's my garden, and I take the most beautiful, healthy uh, specimens, right, that look like they're thriving, and I will use those. Much like in Korean natural farming, they do something very similar. They'll take rice and move it around very healthy vegetation on the mountaintop, in the forest, and capture the yeast and bacteria from those healthy plants and then multiply them and feed that, inoculate the earth with, with those yeast and bacteria. So those are very much the same the same kind. So you go to where, where everything is really healthy and you capture it from that. Also, as far as safety, during the, and if you follow the, the guide on Instagram, during the first three days of fermentation, there's a lot of shaking uh, and burping of the, of the water going on, which ensures that anything that might not be a good strand of yeast or bacteria will die. You know, and so by the end of it, even if there was something that wasn't ideal, uh, the good stuff will take over and will kill it. Okay. Good to know. Excellent. Now, my last question for you is that you're working on a project to feed a lot of people right now. What is going on there? Yes, I'm very excited to talk about this. Thank you for asking. At first, when the COVID hit, there was an immediate flower shortage, right? All the supply lines were cut and we weren't sure where we're going to get the next bag of flour. I felt a little sense of insecurity as far as that. But once once those lines opened up and the mills started working again, and I've received several bags of flour, I looked at it and I said, I can turn that into food. And obviously, you know, realizing that a lot of bakers are always community supported. We're very proud of being community supported bakers. And our community right now is suffering and is hungry and and families are going hungry. And bakers are almost like magicians, right? It's almost like the farmer's daughter from uh, the miller's daughter from Rumpelstiltskin. We can take this white golden powder and turn it into food for people just by adding salt and water. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that would be a great idea. I have a lot of local followers that are bakers. And I thought that if I pull together, we can feed a lot of families like this. And so we started and Charles from Slow Food Ventura has been helping me out and finding different charitable organizations for us to donate the bread for. And we're now on our third bake, and there's two more organizations that are uh, queued up for the next week and the following week. And the first bake, I was one baker. On the second bake, two local bakers joined me. And this week, we are 14 bakers. And so it's really exciting. We're generating, there was a thousand buns for the homeless. This week, we're doing 400 loaves for 400 families. And so if you're a local baker and you want to bake for hungry people, then, you know, reach out and I will uh, let you know how you can be a part of this amazing uh, thing that we're doing. That's amazing. What's so wonderful about this effort that immediately the local grain farmers jumped on board. Um, Larry Kandarian donated triticale and teff grains for us to use. And Sherry from the Tehachapi Grain Project gave us rye and wheat. And Ardent Mill, which is a big milling company, are Mm -hmm. sending us a whole pallet, right? 2,500 pounds of flour 
for me to this because basically my proposition to the bakers is i will replace your flour i don't want them to spend money on flour i need their hands and i need their ovens and i need their love right but i have flour for them and so ardent stepped in a lot of people are extremely happy to to find an opportunity and a way to give back so it's been very heart heartwarming for me to see very rewarding Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. My pleasure. Thank and you. How do people find you? Yes, uh, I am on Instagram as Seor Bread. That's C E O R Bread. And uh, join me on Perfect Sourdough on Facebook. That's a, a group where all the bakers share knowledge, and I'm very active there and share a lot of tips and answer questions there. So these would be the best two places to find me. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has a, been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Christy. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to Guy Frankel's Instagram and Facebook feeds at GardenNerd.com this week. We'll also share his videos, which you could honestly spend all day watching. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1 on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!